Please go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Begin reading towards the end of the chapter and into chapter 5. Acts 4.36. The scripture reads, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. This is one of those unforgettable accounts in your Bible. One that when you read it, it immediately arrests your attention and maybe even brings to your mind and your heart a little sense of dread. But it's a true account. It happened. It happened in the early church in Jerusalem. It's no wonder it's included in this greater work that Luke has written here. You could title this section, Be Sure Your Sins Will Find You Out. That would be a great title. You could entitle it, Never Put the Lord Your God to the Test. That would be a good title too. I chose to call it, The Holy Spirit Deals with Sin in the Church. Because that is exactly what the Holy Spirit did right here. One thing, if you get nothing else from all the rest that is going to be spoken this morning, that you need to understand is God is not just a God of love. God is a holy God. Underscore that and understand that. Anyone who dares to approach an omnipotent being who is holy in a way in which He does not want to be approached. This is the kind of end that happens to those. 
This is not meant in one sense to be an exception. It is meant to teach everybody who God actually is so that nobody approaches God in a way that has a false understanding of who He actually is. The Holy Spirit is holy. God is holy. Now, I want to say that this account here in the New Testament at the beginning of the church age parallels an account that happened in the Old Testament, and it is Achan's sin. Do you remember his sin? Achan was the guy in the Old Testament who was part of the Israelites, and they just crossed over into the land, and Joshua was told how he was to destroy Jericho, and Joshua did that, and everything went as was planned, but all of the money and all the riches of that ancient city, Jericho, were not to be touched by any of the Israelites. Don't touch the gold, don't touch the silver, don't touch anything. It was all under a ban. But there was this feller named Achan. And in his heart, he saw this incredible wealth, and he must have thought something like, what will it harm anything if I get some of that for myself? So he took some, some of that that was under the band. He went to his tent. Remember, they were nomadic at that time. And he buried it under his tent. And evidently, his wife and his whole family knew, and they kept it hush-hush. Joshua sends the warriors off to the next battle at Ai. And he didn't even think he needed to send that many warriors there because it was a smaller city than Jericho. And he went there, and the Israelites this time, rather than a great victory, had a loss and came running away. And there were some 30-some of the soldiers that were slaughtered and killed. And Joshua was distraught, and he fell before the Lord. And the Lord had just finished telling Joshua, everywhere that your foot steps in the land of promise, you're going to conquer it. And this was only the second battle, and already he had lost. And he knew the repercussions of that, that it would give the enemy boldness against his armies. And so he fell before the Lord and said, why did you even bring us into the land of promise to promise us all these things and have us be unsuccessful in the battle? And the Lord says, get up, Joshua. The reason why you lost is there's sin in the camp and you got to deal with the sin first. You can't expect my power and my presence to go with you and give you victory while there's sin in the camp. And so God put in the process a way of finding out who the culprit was. And they brought them forward by the tribes. It was the tribe of Judah. And they brought them forward by the families. And finally, it worked itself down to this man, Achan. And there Joshua stood in front of Achan and said, Achan, give glory to God and confess what you've done. And he confessed it all. And God ordered the death penalty for him, his wife, his children. And after they died, to burn all their possessions, the gold and everything like that, to remind everyone, I am the Lord your God. I'm holy. I'm in your midst. And I will be treated holy. That happened at the very beginning, very beginning of Israel's crossing into the land, right at the establishment of themselves as a nation. This is happening towards the beginning of the church. Church has been around 2,000 years. This happened, what, a year or two after the beginning of the church. It's as if God is saying all over again, here's the start of my church. It's the church of Jesus. When people treat me in an unholy fashion who are inside the church, this is what can happen. This is who I am. It reminds me of 1 Peter 4, 17 that says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so it's a fearful thing, but it's true. Clearly, the parallel is right here. All of us in the church are to honor God as holy. All of us are to understand what the church is really like. We know that unbelievers don't understand what the church of Jesus Christ is like. We understand that they're blind and they're dead in their sins. They don't get it. They just see a pew. They see a building. They hear about programs, singing of songs. They don't really know what God is doing. They don't really understand the movements and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
But we expect believers in Jesus Christ, we expect those who are coming to church to worship him, we expect them to get it. Wouldn't you agree? That this was formed by the Holy Spirit, that the book is from the Holy Spirit, the people were brought by the Holy Spirit, the church was formed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God indwells the church, that the church is gifted by the Holy Spirit, permeated by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We expect us to get that. We have to get that. We have to understand that. We have to bring God reverence. Not because the guy next to us is doing it, but because it's right here in the heart, yes? Well, this portion of Scripture confronts us with that, the holiness of God's Spirit, who's right here in every true gospel-preaching local church. He's there, and he is to be treated that way. And yes, if he's not, God will deal with sin. Now, the point of an historical narrative is not to say that God will always reproduce this. So don't worry if you're sitting there. I don't think you're going to drop dead today. But who knows how God will expose sin, and I want you to think about that this morning. Now, to learn this lesson, there are really two actions by the Holy Spirit which should inspire our awe. The first is that the Holy Spirit produces beautiful fruit. That's at the end of chapter 4. And then the second is this more ominous tone set in chapter 5, and that is the Holy Spirit exposes ugly sin. Let's start with the first action. Look back again at your Bibles, verse 36. The first action is the Holy Spirit produces beautiful fruit. It talks about Joseph. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 36, if you notice, is a continuation of the incredible display of generosity and tangible love that the Holy Spirit produced in the community. And it's described, if you look backwards, in verses 32 through 35. We covered that last time. In fact, many preach these two verses back with verses 32 through 35 due to their obvious connection. Barnabas is doing, he's the sample of what was going on in those verses. However, these verses also draw a contrast with the judgment in chapter 5. The beauty of Barnabas' character and his action is laid side by side with the ugliness of Ananias' heart. Barnabas was one of those who was willing to give up land that he owned to sell it, to bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet so the apostles then would not get rich from that. The apostles were not into prosperity for themselves, but to distribute that money to the poor. It was church members caring for other church members in the highest degree. And Joseph, whom, notice the apostles dubbed Barnabas, was a prime example of genuine giving and sacrifice. Now, since Joseph was such a common name, and because there was already another prominent Joseph in the church, mentioned back in Acts chapter 1, he was the guy that was uh, sort of in competition with Matthias, who would be the 12th apostle. That Joseph was still an honorable person. Because there were other Josephs, and because it was a common name, the apostles decide to give him this honorary nickname, Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. An apt name for this man indeed, for he's mentioned over 20 times in the book of Acts, and it seems when you read about him, he's always doing something encouraging to other people, and that's neat. This snippet where Barnabas kind of comes into focus for the first time in Luke's writing here in Acts is actually a literary device that he uses to introduce someone who's going to become more prominent later on in the narrative. 
Barnabas, as we were to read on, is the one who actually went and got Saul and Tarsus and brought him back and connected him to the apostles in Jerusalem and made them aware of him. And then also from the city of Antioch, launched Barnabas, led the first missionary journey at the beginning, and Saul and John Mark followed him, and he encouraged the whole missionary uh, mission to the Gentiles. He was the guy that did that. And then when John Mark fell out of favor with Paul, it was Barnabas who came alongside his cousin John Mark and encouraged him to stay in the ministry. This guy was a great encourager. And side note, Sometimes you wonder what you can do in church and you're not someone that thinks you can talk in front of people and you can't teach in a classroom or this or that. You can always find somebody who's doing some significant work for God, yes? And say something that will encourage them in their Christian work. You can do that. You can impact people merely by your consistent words of encouragement. If you're gifted that way, by the way, that'll let you know that's so important. As someone who's in ministry, I can tell you words of encouragement often are the fire underneath me that allow me to do what I'm doing. And I know there are plenty of people out there that are serving and discouraged by the lack of support. And you can get in there and you can encourage them and you can lend a helping hand. That's something you can do. Now it says Barnabas was a Levite. And it says, uh, it says as a Levite, that, uh, that puts him in the tribe of Levi, Jew, it probably means he was well-educated and wealthy. The Levites were subordinate to the priests. They did not perform the duties of priests. They would perform other kinds of duties. They acted as police in the temple. They kept the temple grounds. They kept the gates and other things like that. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 9, it says Levites were not allowed to own land. They were allowed to own a house, so says Leviticus 25, 32 and 33. It appears, though, by New Testament times that this law was no longer enforced. It fell out of use. We learn about Barnabas also that he was of Cyprian birth. What does that mean? Merely that he was born on the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's some 225 miles off the coast of Israel during New Testament times and really for a couple of centuries before that, the island of Cyprus had a colony of Jews on it. They were part of the diaspora. Remember when they were pulled off the land and they went out in the exile, not all of them came back. Many of them had found their homes there and their children and their grandchildren had been established. And so there was a vibrant Jewish colony on Cyprus as well. And they arrived there during the Ptolemaic period somewhere around 200 B.C. And Barnabas was born on that island. We're not informed how long he lived on the island. We don't know whether he had uh, moved from there to Jerusalem, and that's how he got connected with the church. We're not giving any of that information. I don't think it's a coincidence, however, that when Barnabas and Saul and John Mark started their first missionary journey, the very first place they went on the first missionary journey was, guess where? Cyprus. Went right to Cyprus. It was territory well-known to Barnabas. But here in Acts chapter 4, please notice it's not Barnabas' evangelism or his leadership or his encouragement that is in focus, but Barnabas' giving, his sacrifice, his generosity, his sincere example of caring for the body of Christ. This sharing is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in that church. As the Holy Spirit was in work at that church, it showed that the people were listening to the doctrine of the apostles and it showed that they were giving towards one another and they were committed to the fellowship. How they used their money was an expression of what was going on in their hearts and their minds and it shows they were gripped by the truth of the kingdom of God and sharing in a major way material possessions of this earth was an easy flowing thing for them. That doesn't happen naturally, you understand. 
It takes the work of the Spirit of God to change us from being so greedy and so stingy to giving bountifully, yes? But it's a beautiful thing. Imagine a local church like that. Imagine where there's no poor person that is in need. That was happening here. And it's a beautiful work of the Spirit of God. It is what the Spirit of God produces. That generosity, that tangible love, that mutual looking out for one another, that is love expressed. And that's a beautiful thing. David Peterson in his commentary comments, with this narrative, Luke encourages others with wealth and status in the church to cross social barriers and benefit those in need. That's right. Those of us who have more need to be giving to those who have less. To see needs, true needs, not where someone has been lazy, not where someone has had made a series of bad decisions and they're just going to rely on the church to fill in where their sin was. We're not talking about that. You have your own personal responsibility in your home to do what is right. But where there are genuine needs, where people have fallen on hard times, there's supposed to be a safety net. That safety net is called the what? The church. The church. And guess who is the church? Us. Not me. Us. Together. Collectively. And when we see that happen, that is the work of the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to say again, it's beautiful. It's noble. It's humble. It's reassuring to other people. It's a mark that God is working among us. It's something we should strive for. Here was an important person in the early church, educated, wealthy, but of humble character dedicated to the cause of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that in Acts 11.24 it says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The church, every church, desperately needs examples like this, who are willing to lower their status in society to elevate the plight of others in the church. Do you see that? It is modeling Christ who considered himself of no account. Remember Philippians 2? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, a man, and even suffered and bled and died on a cross. For who? Not for him, for us. Few there are, though, who walk the walk and don't just talk the talk. Few there are who actually hear messages like this and arrange their life so they would be willing to give up something of consequence to help other people. Usually we deflect this and say, well, I got bills to pay. Instead of internalizing what he was doing there was sacrificing something big, a track of land that gives you status, that gives you something in the world, and he gave it up freely. The character of a local church, though, is built not only on people who stand up front and speak, but on those who go out the doors and do. And they don't ask for recognition after they do. They are faithful pillars of any church. And here is one of them, guided and empowered and taught by the Holy Spirit. It's a great church to be a part of, right? But, chapter 5, but... Not all things were hunky-dory and beautiful in this church. And it's good to see that there is no such thing as a perfect church, okay? Second action. The Holy Spirit not only produces beautiful fruit, the Holy Spirit has to, unfortunately, in the church also expose sin, which is so ugly. 
And he does it first with a man and then second with his wife. Look at the narrative in verse 1 again. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pause right there. The contrast is now drawn. Clearly, I think. Barnabas was a phenomenal example of honest giving, moved by the Spirit of God. Ananias was a horrendous example of knavish maneuvering. We know nothing else about this man, by the way. Nothing else about him. And so forever, his example is etched into our memory as a deceitful man, a two-faced, conniving rascal. Yes, the Bible presents good examples. The Bible also presents bad examples. Why? So that we'll learn not to follow them. What did Ananias do wrongly? Well, like others, it says in the church, he owned a piece of property. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with owning a piece of property. It's a great investment. Like others, he sold his piece of property. There's nothing wrong with that either. Like others, he charged a certain price for the land which he wanted to sell. Again, nothing wrong with that. Like others, he brought money from the purchase and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, that was fine. What was wrong was he told the church that he was giving how much of it? All the money when he secretly, with his wife's full knowledge note, held some back for himself and his family. Now, we don't know whether that was half the money, most of the money, a portion of the money. It doesn't matter. He pledged all of it. He said he was going to give the whole thing. He did it in front of the entire church where the apostles were, and he didn't do what he said. Instead, he enacted a secret operation against the church, and that, beloved, that was wrong. That was sin. Please notice how the Holy Spirit through Peter exposes Ananias' deceit and hypocrisy in verse 3. He asked a series of questions to Ananias to bring out this ugly truth. He asked four questions of Ananias, and then rather than waiting for him to give an answer, Peter already knew the answer, and so he punctuated those questions with his own convicting conclusion. And that conclusion is the lesson we're supposed to learn. Track with this because we're going to go through the questions and I know we won't get through all of them today. The first question is really the the most important question. It's Peter's main question. It's the one we're supposed to get. Verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? I don't know how he said it, but I think there must have been sorrow when he asked that question. You understand when you read that, that that question was more of a statement than it was a question, right? Why did he keep it back? Keep back some of the price of land. That verb, it's actually a rare verb, nosfidzo. It means to pilfer or embezzle or deprive. Remember, he dedicated it all to the Lord, so it's no longer his. But then he took back, he kept back, he pilfered from that for himself. The same verb, interestingly, is used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, of the sin that Achan committed when he pilfered and took for himself. Ananias kept back part of the price 
while telling everybody that he was giving the whole. Now, in case any of your minds and your conscience have kind of flipped something up and said, I don't want to listen anymore to what this guy is saying because at the end, he's going to be asking for money and he's going to be putting everybody in a guilt trip. I want to put you at ease. I'm not going to ask for a penny today. I'm not going to, this, is not, this is not a lesson about you giving money. That's not it at all. This is a lesson about truthfulness and the Holy Spirit in the church. Ananias kept back what he said he was going to give the whole, and he didn't. He told a pseudomai. He falsified it. He told a lie. He was deceitful, and Peter caught it. And this deceit was meant to cover up Ananias' true heart's condition. The truth about Ananias what kind of a man he was, what character he had. The truth about this man was he was a covetous man anchored in the world and wanting things of the world. He desired money for himself. He desired status for himself. He wanted to appear in the church as a pious Jew, a man who followed the things of God, committed to the congregation. He wanted to appear religious and dedicated to the cause of Jesus Christ. He wanted others to admire him the same way they must have gone. Look what Barnabas did. Like Jesus talked about in John 12, 43, he loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And that is why his heart was not the same as Barnabas's heart. His heart was clouded. His heart was insincere. Covertly, he coveted the money. He coveted the lifestyle that went with the money. He wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted his cake and eat it too. He wanted to be known as godly but maintain his same worldly heart. Mark it down. Ananias was a hypocrite with a capital H. Sometimes people don't go to church. They say there are too many hypocrites in there, and that's hypocritical of them because they themselves are hypocrites as well. Are there hypocrites in the church? Of course they are hypocrites in the church. This was the first church, and they had one. They had a big one there. His heart was full of avarice. Remember what Jesus severely warned about in the Sermon on the Mount? And he said this to the Jews because a lot of religion is outward display. And the Jews by that time had a lot of outward display. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. That's where he gave the advice, if you want something, go quietly in your closet, ask for it. God sees in secret and he'll give it. But if you're going to do it in front of everybody so that you can be noticed by them and that's your motive, forget about getting anything from God because he hates that. Listen, hypocrisy and lying to God is no small sin. Hell will be populated by liars and hypocrites. Revelation 21.8, read it. Matthew 24.51, read it. The men on Saturday morning, meeting here at church, are studying and discussing together Thomas Watson's book, The Godly Man's Picture. It's a great book. I hope that more of you consider to come out and be enriched by what we're learning. In one of his chapters, he uncovers the hypocritical masks of so many religious people in church. Remember, he was writing some three, four hundred years ago. It was the same then. He writes this lengthy and vivid description of religious hypocrites. Would you please listen with an open heart to his description? He writes this Men are ambitious of credit and wish to gain repute in the world. 
Therefore, they will dress themselves in the guard and mode of religion so that others may write them down for saints. But alas, what is one the better for having others commend him and his conscience condemn him? What good will it do a man when he is in hell that others thought he's gone to heaven? Oh, beware of this. Counterfeit piety is double iniquity. To have a show of godliness is a God-enraging sin. The man who is a pretender to saintship, but whose heart tells him he has nothing but the name, carries Christ in his Bible, but not in his heart. Some politic design spurs him on in the ways of God. He makes religion a lackey to his carnal interest. What is this but to abuse God to his face and to serve the devil in Christ's livery? He goes on and he doesn't spare any punches. This is to cheat yourself, deceiving your own souls, James 1.23. He who has counterfeit gold instead of true wrongs himself most. The hypocrite deceives others while he lives but he deceives himself when he dies. The hypocrite is born under a sad planet. He is abhorred by all. Wicked men hate him because he makes a show, and God hates him because he only makes a show. The wicked hate him because he has so much as a mask of godliness, and God hates him because he has no more. Hypocrites lose all that they have done, Their disassembling tears drop beside God's bottle. Their prayers and their fasts prove abortive. And then he ends with this mockery of the hypocrite. You who have nothing but a specious pretext and mask of piety expose yourself to Satan's scorn. You shall be brought forth at the last day as was Samson to make the devil sport. Judges 16.25. The devil will say on that day, what has become of your vows, your tears and confessions? Has all your religion come to this? Did you so often defy the devil? And have you now come to dwell with me? Could you meet with no weapon to kill you but that which was made of gospel metal? Could you not suck poison anywhere but out of the church ordinances? Could you find no way to hell but by seeming godly? What a vexation this will be to have the devil thus reproach a man. Let us therefore take heed of this kind of pageantry and devout stage play. Playing games with God is dancing with the devil. When you are a hypocrite, The others around you may not know. Be assured God knows. He knows who you are at home alone. He knows what goes through your mind and your heart. He knows who you are serving. You will not escape. You will not escape the wrath of God. You will will meet the same end, the same perdition the devil does. The same damnation of the devil will be for you. Remember how hell was described? Hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna, was created for who? Do you remember? The devil and his angels. But any human that follows him 
ends up in his abode. The apostle Peter smelled Ananias' hypocrisy. He knew of Ananias' deceit. How he knew, we're not told. A little insight here to you. All apostles were prophets. And so since the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this context, it's likely as a prophet of God that the Spirit told Peter of this directly. Reminds us also of an Old Testament story, another Old Testament story, this time of the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but his successor, Elisha. And Elisha had a servant. Do you remember his name? Gehazi. And Gehazi had greed. And God revealed Gehazi's greed to Elisha, and then he pronounced a judgment on him, and he had leprosy. He was struck with leprosy. Well, here with Peter, this time the man was not struck with leprosy. He was struck what? He was struck dead. It's like a guy came to church, brought his offering, and God killed him in front of the whole congregation. That's a story that'll get out. There are two kinds of people in the visible church. The visible church is what it looks like outwardly. The true church is those that are saved, but there's always the visible church. There are two kinds of people in the visible church. One are true believers who are struggling with their own sin, but they really love the Lord. They've repented of their sin. They believe in Christ, but they're still struggling with their own sin. They're trying to learn, trying to grow, trying to avail themselves of the means of grace, the word of God, the fellowship of the saints. They're not by any means perfect, but they've chosen a direction to go in their life. Sometimes they stumble, but they pick up and they keep going. But there's another kind of person, and that's the person who's in church for some other motive. I don't know why there's so many church that are, churches now that are trying to get people into church with all the wrong motives. For all the entertainment and for getting rich, they're just bringing more and more Ananiases and Sapphiras into the church. You think God wants that? Yeah, but the church will grow. It'll grow, yeah. The visible church will grow. But sooner or later, by the way, as many in Hollywood are finding out now, the truth bobs to the surface. The sins will find you out. They do. So many people think they get away with things with God. After all, it's been a year Two years, three years, ten years. I buried that thing. I was so cunning. My friend, you are such a fool. You're such a fool. God who's patient with you will not be patient forever. He will expose it. He's giving you time. He's giving you time to bring forth your own sin, to confess what your sin is. Be sure your sins will find you out. You got two choices. You can come, you can tell the folks about your sin or you can wait and God will tell them all about it and he'll announce it broadly and loudly. Those are your two choices. Humble yourself now or be humbled then. I say it's better to confess now. Deceitfulness in Christ's church is a serious matter. It shows a person not under the influence of the Holy Spirit but under the influence of another spirit that of Satan. And so Peter frames this deceit as something that indicates that Ananias let his heart be filled by Satan with this deceit. It doesn't mean that Satan jumped into this man. It doesn't necessarily mean that. That was true of Judas Iscariot where Satan actually indwelt Judas and he went off and he betrayed Christ again for money, right? 30 pieces of silver, he betrays the son of man. He did it for money because his heart was greedy because Judas was always pilfering from the money bag that they had as they traveled from town to town. It doesn't mean that this is like this, but it does mean Ananias was influenced by the spirit of Satan. 
that in his heart, he wanted that more than anything else, and Satan took advantage of that and used that. It was interesting to me as I came to this text in Acts chapter 5 that Satan had not been mentioned at all until chapter 5 of Acts. I'm like, where's he been? You know, if you go into the Gospels and you read about it, there's demon possession everywhere. There's the devil coming to, to tempt Jesus on the 40th day he's there. There's the devil entering into Judas. Devil's all over the place to try to ruin the work of God, which he can never do. Where is he here in Acts? Where is he with the church? Where has he been since the start of Pentecost? I believe he's been right there all along. He's been right there all along. What was he doing? He was circling the wagons. He was looking for the weak link, somewhere to attack. Peter wrote in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who can I get? Who can I attack? Who can I use to get on the inside of a church? So Peter recognizing all of this in Ananias, said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You need to understand, Peter was not asking for Ananias to give some kind of a theological discourse and explain all the motives that Satan has as the accuser of the brethren and as the opponent of God, trying to get inside of Satan's mind to figure out, why would Satan ever want to do a thing like that? We know exactly why Satan wouldn't want to do a thing like that. He's the father of lies. Peter knew Satan is the enemy of God, that the church is always under assault. But Ananias was a willing participant, and that's what the question gets at. Peter held Ananias accountable for Satan's devices inside of him. Satan used Ananias. Ananias opened himself up to Satan's abuse. You can never say, When you sin, the devil made me do it. It takes a willing participant. It's clear that Satan hated this sincere example of love this early church was exhibiting. There's no question being true to his own character as the father of lies. He wanted either to hurt the church from the outside as he will try persecution and intimidation from the outside. Even better, even greater damage from his perspective he can have, he can get, if he can get to one of the leaders on the inside of a church who's filled with deceit. One of the main men inside of the church who's filled with lying and deceit. If he can get them, that's the best thing that he can do. That's the best way to rip apart a church. That's the best way to ruin beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. Get one of them. After all, isn't that how Satan ultimately got to Jesus by getting into one of the 12, Christ's closest ones. Of course, God turned it into good. But the same here, Satan wanted on the inside. Did you know that Satan wants to go to church? Did you know there's no place on Sunday morning Satan would rather be than in church? And he would like one of you to invite him in. Not to worship, but to reap havoc. He wants to find a church person, a church person. He can wield like an axe to break a congregation apart, to hurt its ministry, to damage its reputation, to turn people away from it. He hunts for a man or a woman on the inside of the church. He can ruin the beauty of what the Holy Spirit is producing. And in this burgeoning church, Satan found his man, this insincere believer Ananias, who attracted the attention of the devil like blood and water attracts sharks. 
Christian soldier, please remember this. It is no coincidence that the first piece of armor you must put on in the spiritual warfare is the belt of truth. For if you are insincere and you are lying to the brethren about your life and what you're doing and the sins you're trying to cover up, there is no way you can fight the spiritual war against the father of lies. Lying is his weapon. If the lies have come into you and you're participating with the lies, you can't fight the battle. You're doing more damage in this army than anywhere else. You can't resist the devil while you deceive others in church. You can't cover up your personal sin pretending to be somebody that you're not. And so Satan filled Ananias' willing heart with a lie. And he thought he was cheating everyone. And we're going to get to the point, really the punchline. We haven't even got to it yet. And that is that when he did this, what Ananias didn't understand was he, he wasn't just lying to the people there in church. He, he wasn't lying to men. He was lying to who? To God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. When you lie that way, you lie to God. You fool everybody in church. You'll never fool God. And that's the point. We'll pick up there next time and continue this sobering lesson. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time to hear your word. Help us to take it to heart, each of us, from our leaders down. Confess our sins. Be honest with who we are. Not try to pretend to be someone we're not. And get right with you this very day before your judgment in some way may fall on us in a way that we cannot even imagine. We pray it earnestly for your people, Father, that you watch over them, convict them, and expose that which is hypocritical. Humble their hearts. Help them now to confess their sin. This very day, Father, help them not to wait. We pray to Christ's name, amen.